All right, folks, welcome to another episode of Roxy Fever. I'm your host, Jax McDonald. Uh, it's been a while since we've had an episode out. Uh, COVID has uh, really, you know, taken its toll on all of us. So we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for you guys to hear from Vyas and Elliot. But joining me right now for a very special one-on-one episode is the man behind Hockey Viz. You may know him as the guy who posts a lot of cool graphs uh, on Twitter that uh, may or may not occasionally look like boobs, uh, or by the Twitter handle, at Ineffective Math. It's Micah Blake McCurdy. Micah, how are you today? I'm well, thanks, Jackson. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for coming on. So the the obvious place to start here, we're in the midst of the Stanley Cup final, and I think, you know, if you had asked most people at the start of the season or even at the start of the playoffs, most people wouldn't be that surprised to see Tampa where they are. But uh, the Dallas Stars are, are a bigger surprise, I think, for a lot of people and certainly for myself. So would you mind just <laughs> basically explaining their success to me? Because they were a team that I and I think a lot of others had sort of written off by this point. Um, and they've, they've really impressed and uh, surprised a lot of people. So. so the most obvious thing, part of why they were really written off is that for a big, big stretch of the season, they just couldn't shoot. And couldn't finish, I should say. They got a fair number of shots, but just could not put the puck in the net. And of course, some of those some of those struggles have continued. Tyler Sagan still can't buy a goal to save his life. <laughs> and and so so on the one hand, on the one hand, there's been a certain amount of fortune, um, as I think is true for every team that makes the the finals. You know, that's one of those things. You know, when you go through a a multi round single you know not single elimination but a multi round elimination tournament, you're you're going to select for luck unavoidably mm-hmm. yes so that's that's always there but also the expectations were a bit lower than they might have been because they had such a long stretch for of, of bad shooting and part of why i looked at it a little bit differently is that is that data work has trained me to realize that shooting slumps for individual players can last much much longer than you think and so and when they happen to line up they can last long for you're, you know, it's very easy to watch a game play for 10 or 20 games and have dreadful shooting results and be like, oh, the team can't shoot. <laughs> and, and if you say in a typical conversation with another hockey fan, you know, actually, I think it's just a slump. I think they'll just be fine. You know, you'll, you'll easily get laughed off if you say that sort of thing. And, and it's an uncomfortable truth that those sorts of slumps and, and dually those sorts of hot streaks can actually last for a really long time, what appears to be a really long time, without being uh, an actual change in skill and and so once you take that longer view and then and data work really sort of you know beats this discipline into you over years once you start taking that longer view then you look back at shooting results over a much longer frame and it doesn't look nearly as frightening and so if you're looking at results from from last year you can get as well as from this year then you can get a, a bit of a better picture on on what a team's true talent is, which gives you an idea also of how, you know, just how much randomness there is that you really do have to look back that far. Yeah. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin for Dallas is that their team defense is extremely strong. You know, we've, we've all gotten bored of being told that, Oh, you know, that team, they got outshot, but they kept them to the outside. <laughs> and, and like, there's a, a joke among nerds that, you know, and because it's so routinely a lie, it's the sort of thing that's been trotted out so many times to justify teams that are actually just getting blitzed who don't want to admit to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, it, but it does happen, and there are some teams who can consistently do it. They're just quite rare, not nearly as common as you'd think by how often you hear the trope deployed. 
And so one of the things that I found extremely useful in the last few years, you know, when I started doing hockey analytics, I was, I was, you know, following in the footsteps of everybody who came before me. And I was looking primarily just at shot counts, you know, where you're really examining the neutral zone. Are teams getting into the zone? Are they getting out of their own zone? And, and moving away from that towards something more fine-grained where I'm saying, okay, now where are they allowing shots? You know, you see that the stars are allowing considerably, not hugely, but considerably less dangerous shots um, because they protect the slot and the net front so well. And that, you know, defense is, is boring and unsexy. And so it doesn't get the same. It's funny. And, and you know, this is the same, goes back to what we were saying too about, about like tropes that, that we've been told that bad defensive players who are also bad offensive players are just, are actually good at defense when they're not so often that, that it's easy to be told, oh, you know, this team is really good defensively and sort of say, well, you know, I've, I just treat all statements like that as lies. Yes. And that's, there's something sensible to that. Um, to that like way of operating within the culture, you know, when, when so many people are saying these things groundlessly so many times, in fact, that's part of why I get extra upset about this sort of, this sort of thing, like, you know, cause that poisons the well for me when I want to actually say, you know, this team does keep people to the outside and know that guy is actually really tough and you know, all that stuff yes. when it's been used yes. to justify annoying players. Absolutely. No, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me because it, it is just, the shot quality exists and that's a thing that uh i think initially a lot of analysts like certainly more sort of stats savvy analysts kind of struggled with was that you know i remember one of the first like we're we're definitely going to spend some time here talking about the stats wars and i know one of the earliest fronts in the stats wars were the i believe it was the 2013 2014 leafs or maybe it was the 12-13 Leafs. I can't remember which iteration it was. But it was the year that the Leafs um, went to Game 7 against the the Bruins on the, just the backs of those amazing uh, stretches by Reimer and Bernier and Nett, and they were just getting shelled mm-hmm. brutally. And the, the thing that came up over and over again was uh, Randy Carlisle would talk about shot quality. Oh, it's all about shot quality. Yeah, we're we're getting outshot forty to twenty every night, but we're really winning the shot quality battle. And obviously, that was a load of horseshit, basically. But it kind of it poisoned the well a little bit around the the topic of the fact that obviously it's good to look at shots. It's important to look at shots, but if you're not looking at where those shots are coming from and the sort of quality of the the chances that teams are getting, you will lose things in uh in the process of doing that and i think that um with with regards to the stars definitely one of the things that i that i think made me just initially write them off so much is because it's so easy to just think ah well you can't win playing that way you can't win being the team that that tries to limit shot quality without also uh trying to limit shot volume which is i think you know, I think they actually do limit shot volume as well, but it has been interesting. Yeah, some. To see, yes, yeah. It has been interesting to see them have so much success because even though I think there is a very, um, there's an analytical argument you could make for their success as a, as a fan, as a viewer, you, you just expect um, basically for NHL GMs or the media or whoever 
kind of has their hands near the levers of power in the NHL, you expect them to always learn whatever the worst possible lesson is from whatever <laughs> happens. And so watching the stars, you know, there is a, uh, a, there's an obvious analytical argument you can make for their quality as a team, but as a, as a sort of a layman, as a person who expects general managers to just always take the worst lesson from everything, I kind of find myself rooting against them because I don't want to watch teams <laughs> emulate, try to do a dime store version of this stars team because they think it's, it's easier than trying to, you know, trying to build like a team like Tampa, let's say for an example or whatever else, but that's not really sure. fair to, that's not really fair to the stars who I think have actually sort of figured out how to be one of those rare teams that, does keep the shots to the outside even though they they might get outshot or they might be they might be losing the shot battle by um by in the traditional uh standpoint but can actually limit scoring chances which is a more of a nebulous thing that is a harder thing to talk about because there's more conjecture involved but while we're on on that topic something that uh that that made me think of is I, I saw someone on Twitter the other day talking about the Vegas Golden Knights and how they consistently, at least by the by the public, you know, natural stat trick kind of metrics, um, they've sort of routinely underperformed their expected goal totals. And so, I guess my next question for you would be, what do you think? Uh, what do you what do you make of that? Like, what do you what do you make of the idea that there are teams who are going to consistently uh, underperform where we think they should be based on how much they're winning the shot or expected goal battle because of 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 shooting talent like you mentioned with the stars how much they were struggling uh converting like is there is there anything to that how how much kind of stock do you put in that idea i i think there's definitely there's definitely a tension there that that i think now we're getting to the point where we can we can move from just saying okay this exists to to really doing actual analysis where we say, okay, how much the, mm-hmm. where the, where you're not saying, you know, like that. And that transition as a nerd is always the one that interests me. Like, <laughs> like all of these, like all of these things, you know, all these things that people talk about, you know, like, is that guy a great character in the room? You know, sure. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. We've all worked with people who are assholes and we've all worked with people who are charming and wonderful who make you want to come into work every day. And like, no one disagrees with that. But then the real question is how much, you yes. know, what is it? What does it matter? And so, so like, um, Vegas being an expansion team, the you know the specific details of precisely who they fleeced and how much did they fleece them is <laughs> has been great great amusement for yes. for people to go over. But all up, they still mostly got players who were uh, not particular shooting talents. The you know the, the handful of exceptions that really proved that rule, like William Carlson going on just an extraordinary <laughs> yes. bender of shooting for like. He, he was fine before, and I was one of the people who was saying, you know, I don't think he's such a bad choice, but it would be a terrible lie to say I expected him to, to go off like he Suddenly did. Suddenly become a 40 now, goal scorer, yeah. Well, and, really and, and he had a, a really good season the year after, the first one too, yeah. and, you know, and already now he's settled, settled down into something much more like what people were expecting, which is, you know, capable, fine, plays well, you know, is not sniping every single shot. No, yes. But, and, you know, you can look at video from his first year, and those are like, you know, he's not bouncing them in off people's butts. He was taking fantastic shots and just mm-hmm. killing them. So like, 
but, but with him as a sort of an obvious foil to the rest of the team, they mostly had the kinds of players who were not particularly valued by GMs as a whole. And, you know, the guys who get exposed on expansion rosters. And so, so they were, but they were still chosen cleverly from among those as a rule that with some side deals to improve things along the way. And those players have that, you know, capital A analytics quality to them where they generate more than they can finish. Yes. And, and that like fundamental truth, if you like, that we're still arguing about is still true at its core that, that getting, you know, getting 10 dimes is better than getting two quarters. But the, but the embroidery there about shot quality where specifically shooters are, are universally prized and have been for a very, very long time is one of the, one of the things that GMs really do love and that contracts do reward is that if you personally put the puck in the net or, you know, failing that pass the puck to a guy who puts the puck in the net. So you get points, you know, those are our two favorite metrics, the ones that we really love the, as a, as a culture, you know, those things get rewarded. And so by proxy, people who can shoot, who can convert shots, get a lot of money, which leaves the people who are driving or or helping in other ways, leaves them to be picked sort of next. And that's the kind of crop you get in an expansion team. And so a lot of the players match that that general pattern. And and now we're getting into the the shooter quality details that lets us see, you know, maybe you know, if your expected goals model, so I, you know, now you get into technical distinctions, you know, do you put that stuff into your expected goals models or not? The, but, but one way or another, you can account for it when you're actually trying to say, okay, how many goals do I expect? In fact, from this <laughs> yes. team, this many, this many, you know, XG combined with this kind of shooting talent gives me, you know, like if I'm taking the same shots on Washington's power play, I'm expecting more goals than if I take them on, you know, Carolina's power play, for instance. Sure. The, because I because I know that the personnel there is different, and so once you like once you say once you get past the do I want a shooter or do I want uh, a passer or do I want a grinder or do I want this kind of player, and then you start getting into the okay, no, how many? No, okay, this roster gives me this many shots, and I can expect to convert less of them, and so I expect this kind of consistency, that kind of thing. Like once you can change that conversation and make it more like, what kind of roster do I have? How can I make it better rather than just you know, is the team good? Like once we can move the conversation in that direction. And I think we're getting there sort of as a, as a sport, like that's, this is sort of stepping back a little bit from the question you actually asked, but the, like the ability of not just me, but like the whole culture of the sport and the way people talk about it is actually improving in just an enormous way. Certainly. In this sort of thing. Yeah. Like, like I remember five years ago when I started doing this full time, you know, and, and you really, were just arguing things like more shots is good to people who would not listen <laughs> yes, and yeah. like and and the 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 improvement in the whole conversation is much much better it is easy to lose sight of that too i think like i i i and something oh, people still yell oh absolutely yes but uh, something that you know i has been so interesting for me is that i found that because i've been writing about hockey for Somewhere in the neighborhood of five years, I got I started to get really into um, sort of the online uh, hockey community and the Tortorella Canucks year. So that was around 20, 2013, 2014. And then I started writing a little bit after that. And something that I've found that is a very, very good sign was that when I started out writing, 
I could get a leg up on probably 70, 80% of the competition by just knowing where to look and what numbers to look at. And that's yeah. not really the case anymore. Like everyone has those numbers now and everyone at least they might not know what to do with the numbers, but they know that they exist and they know to look at them and they know where to look. So I, I guess that, that leads me to the, probably the, the biggest reason I want to have you on is this idea that seems to be gaining purchase, at least in some corners of hockey, that this postseason has somehow been like a repudiation of analytics as a, as a concept. And uh, I feel like it, it would be very open-ended to just ask you what you make of that. But what do you make of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, uh, the, many, many of your listeners, I'm sure, follow me. Although some who don't might remember that, that uh, after Dallas's Game 1 win in the Cup Final, I, uh, I drank a great deal of wine and made a lot of extremely silly tweets. <laughs> yes, about, I remember that, certainly. And, and, part of, and, and some of them... Um, the, you know, it takes a real astute observer to distinguish the drunk tweets from the sober ones because I'm sort of <laughs> like that all the time. But the 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 point, one of the things that I, I was annoyed at seeing this trope about, you know, oh, you know, if the stars win, then that will be the death of analytics. When when people, I mean, I want to say people like me, but basically just me particularly, you know, had been beating a drum for, I mean, the better part of a year and a half, yeah, saying that if you looked carefully at the stars, you would see a much better team. And, and so part of the trouble, of course, is that this word analytics, both for proponents and for opponents, has this real straw man character. You just fill it up with whatever you want it to be. Absolutely. And, yeah. You know, it, like, I remember somebody, somebody wrote some article about me, and it was, in fact, it was a lovely article, but they, they insisted on titling it something about money puck. And mm -hmm. by analogy with, with money ball and baseball, and and one of the bizarre, and I, I protested, I said, you know, I do a lot of work in a lot of different subjects, but I've never, ever looked at contracts. Just not ever. Yes. Yeah, I totally. I, I have, I have nothing interesting to say about them. I don't know anything about them. Like every now and again, when people make a bet, like, you know, I, I've been flooded with people saying things to me, Penguin fans are upset that they traded for Mike Matheson, sure. who has a, who has a rough contract and, and the, you know, rough for the team. Great for him, obviously. Yes. And the, the, <laughs> Um, and, you know, people saying, you know, I wish you were at my team and you could take care of my cat. And I'd be like, I actually, you know, until I looked it up, I didn't really know what Mike Matheson's contract was. I just don't yeah, do it totally. anymore. Like, but so the, some people, as soon as you say the word analytics, they just immediately think about money. Yes. You know, the baseball being the influence there particularly, you know, they think we're going to get an edge in our competitors by, by spending a little bit more cleverly. We're going to save money or we're going to get a better team for the same amount of money or what have you. And other people say, oh, analytics is about you know, getting guys who can grind, you know, they think about the King's cup runs Sure. and, you know, and it's all about forechecking somehow. And other people say, Oh no, analytics is about, is about making sure that you guys stay healthy. They somehow think it's like a fancy sort of sports science. Yes. And, you know, I remember, in fact, when the Canucks went on their cup run, there all of a sudden there were those fawning articles about how, you know, they had sleep science people. That's and that right. Was the, future yeah. of the sleep doctors and they had the, uh, the mind room too. That is not right. analytics, by the way. That's some like, that's some Silicon Valley stuff. That's a whole sure. other, other thing. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm ranging around to prove the point that, that like this word is this sort of exists as this battleground word. You know, it's whatever, it sounds techie and kind of fun, but also kind of stupid and nerdy. And so we're going to like, it, it has all the right things that you need to make something that people can yell about. Yes. And, and so I like, I don't, 
you know, and so that is what I was upset about in the specific context of the cup final where people were looking at Dallas and saying, Oh, if Dallas wins, they're an anti-analytics team. You know, if not to like deliberately appropriate the obvious moral high ground, but, but if you can win with it, then I want to know how. Yes. And that's, you know, that's the, like, and one of the things that I have, that I've definitely learned is that there are ways that are, that are more, um, lucky and there are ways that are less lucky, but there aren't any ways that always work. Yeah, the, absolutely. You know, the, the talent, the talent, the total talent level is too high. The the competition is too good. The, the willingness of teams to just say, okay, well, that sucked. We're going to do something totally different. We're going to fire all of the people involved. We're going to turn the roster over, over by 50%. We're going to just, you know, in three years, you're not going to be able to recognize a man in the team on the ice or behind it. Like that, that willingness of the sport to change extremely quickly, as well as the high level of total talent that goes in. You know, even though there are, you know, brutal cultural blind spots that persist the entire sport and do for years, that makes it so that, you know, you're not ever going to say, ah, now this is the way and I'm going to tell you how it is. Like you don't, you don't get to take that opinion, not successfully. I mean, people do. You don't get to be right when you say stuff like that, either as an old guard, you know, listen here, young whippersnapper hockey man, nor as an up and coming data nerd with every model in your pocket, you know, that, that simply doesn't describe the situation of what you're talking about. And once you realize that, you know, then this idea that, oh, you know, these are the analytics teams, that's one way to win. And those are the heavy teams. That's another way. And those are the, I don't know, Martian teams. Like it's, it's really, really silly to partition the universe of how you can think about hockey like that. This idea that analytics is like a part of town that you can visit and take pictures of the architecture. You know, it's like not, there's not that kind of thing. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of that saying, happiness is not a fish you can catch. Uh, right. It's like analytics is not a fish you can catch. Like, it's a, it, it, I mean, I, I, honestly, this is, a, I guess, a good a point, as good a point to ask this question as any. But uh, it seems to me that increasingly, to the degree that analytics ever meant anything specific in the first place, that's even less the case now. Like it's, it's become even more of a buzzword with even less of a tangible meaning than it ever had in the first place. So I I would be curious what, when you talk about analytics, what do you mean by that word? So I, for me, I use it as a kind of, um, as a kind of proxy, you know, it's tricky given what I was saying before, it's tricky to keep it from sort of devolving into this, like analytics is what I do. Whatever yes. you do is some <laughs> other thing, you know, so, so you don't, you don't want to get into that. So I like, I try to think of it um, using sort of scientific lines of thinking, you know, hockey, I think of in, in the sense of as a discipline is what I do. I think of it like a social science, you know, it's, I try and apply scientific methods, but the things in question are people, you know, what do they yes. do? The hockey players, what do they do? The hockey managers, what do they do? The, scouts, all the people who are involved, what do they do? And so that's something that I'm trying to study. And so social science is famously soft science. You know, my, my background is math and a little bit of physics where, where you're trying to apply scientific methods, but the stuff is, you know, rocks and electrons and it's considerably more uh, regular. And so <laughs> yes. you get, so you get, you know, even biology where you're like, how do the machines go? You know, is, the, is still considerably more regular and more defined than something like a social science where the, you know, the people change on you as you go. So, but I try and think of it in, in those sorts of terms where that lets me say, 
Well, if I'm going to be doing analytics, that means I need to be able to justify my opinion. And so it's not about being right, it's about being convincing, which is an instinct that, that comes from mathematics, where, where my original background, where you know it's not enough to calculate some number, you have to, if you're really doing math, you're proving things, that means you're persuading other people. And so, so it has a lot more to do with showing your work, a lot more to do with being quantitative, because that makes you, that enforces a certain discipline. You can't just say, well, I prefer this. Well, why? Yes. And getting into that. And so doing all of that properly, the machinery for doing all of that properly is statistics, which, you know, every now and again, I get a lot of people who are like, oh, Mike, you're so good at stats. I wish you would teach my stats course. And I say, well, you know, that's funny because I, I'm in a math and stats department. And if I went up to the, to the chair of the department and said, I want to teach stats 101, they would say, no, you can't teach stats. <laughs> but we, ha we have statisticians who teach stats. And... And they'd be right to. I've never taken a stats course in my life. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely just slumming it when it comes to stats. The, and, and so like all of those, like that, that's a sort of social scientist attitude where you're, you're unavoidably reaching across discipline. You know, I often think when I'm making models, you know, boy, I wish I had a coach, you know, whose opinion I really trusted, whose language I spoke, or I could say, you know, when would you ever tell a player to do this? And when would you tell them to do that? And how would you tell them to it? Like, and what would you say if you wanted to get that across? You know, what would actually do that trick? You know, how does this work? Can guys do this? Can that be effective here? Does that ever work? You know, like being able to do that and meshing that with the mathematical tools to be able to capture the complexity that you want with the statistical tools to make sure that you're not just constantly being fooled with the, the design tools so that you can get your point across, you know, and then the so-called quote unquote soft skills so that you can actually connect with people to do it. You know, that all of those things fall for me into this sort of social science -y angle. And it makes me wish, you know, it's one of the few things I have no training in whatsoever. You know, I never take a social science class in my life. Yeah. And I would, I would love to, to get back to that. And so when I think of analytics, I think of that essence being, can you justify why you think what you think in a way that's rigorous and disciplined? And so it's more like a science than it is like a, like a technology or like a philosophy. Sure. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that seems reasonable to me. And it's, it's funny you mentioned philosophy because, well, there's two, there's two, this opens up two threads. I guess the, the first is that one thing that kills me as a person who's, you know, to the extent that I have any training at all, which is not much, let me tell you, uh, I guess if I have an area of expertise, it's in communications and something that, can often drive me nuts when I consume um, content that is that has a certain analytics bent to it is that it often seems like the community the analytics community to the extent that that even exists is often just not particularly good at selling their product I guess is a way of putting it or or um, aren't particularly good at advocating for themselves because I think of you know one great example is that one of the things that set this whole conversation off was that, that soundbite from Tyler Sagan where he said, well, well, you know, this just shows you that analytics are overrated. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, you know, obviously that's great fodder for people like us to dunk on if we want to, to the extent that, you know, a guy online uh, dunking on a, like one of the best hockey players in the world who makes millions of dollars is a dunk. You're right. Um, but, you know, if you look at the way the question was framed, which was something like, you know, it not in so many words, but hey, you guys really suck and get outshot a lot. What do you think about that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. It's a bit like, well, and, what did I mean, you expect him to say, you know? 
Well, I mean, hardly anyone asks a question. I mean, we, we complain constantly about how hockey players are asked stupid questions and they give stupid answers, which they do. Yes. And then, you know, but all of a sudden, as soon as they use the magic word that has to do with what we do every day, now we're not joking about how stupid it is. We're going to go yell about it. Yes. You know, there's there's yeah. something really... Uh, who is it? Um, there's a famous physicist. Um, um, I forget his name, Gelman or Gelman, who, who said... Um, something exactly like this. You know, you read something in the newspaper that is about your area of special expertise and they just get it all wrong. And, you know, you make fun of them and you think, boy, what a mistake. And then you turn the page and you think, oh, fascinating. Interest rates are going up. How? I wonder why. You know, and <laughs> yes. then you, you, you Indonesia is at a crossroads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This old economist joke. And, and you, you like, it's so easy to be sort of blasé when it's not your thing but then as soon as it's your thing and you lose all perspective and just go yell i mean i don't i don't like i'm not trying to yell at people who yell it's sort of oh. pure catharsis there why not and i mean after all we have this great space which among other things lets us just sort of yell about stuff <laughs> yes but, yes but i mean but no there wasn't there wasn't anything there and like the conversation i also like i don't i don't consider sagan specifically to be part of my target audience in fact, in fact, if anything, every now and again, I like I have a persistent problem where where now and again people want to. If I say something particularly nice or particularly unkind about a player, um, I'll get people either approvingly or disapprovingly, depending, tagging them in my mentions, and I have to like weed Ooh, them yeah. out and quietly DM them and say, "Please don't do this. I think it's rude." And yes. and you know, sports are really unusual that way in that they you know the, the doing of them exists in this publicly scrutinized space. And, and, you know, there's not very many professions that are like that, politics being the obvious. The only other one, I, obviously, I can think of where it's not just enough to go to work and do your job. You know, everyone gets to yell about how you did. Yes. Yes. And, and that's, you know, and I think that's part of what you get paid for. And, and so I've, I've taken on, like in my own work, I've taken on a public position, where, where, which includes a little part of that. You know, it's just sort of in miniature. Obviously, it doesn't pay like Sagan. It doesn't have that same flash and prestige. Yes. But, but that links back to what you were saying a second ago about about how sometimes presentation can be can be lost um in some senses a lot of people don't care you know they've they've done their very best they've got their best results and they just want to tell you what the results are you know they're they're not trained in communications many people have you know work that they want to present but they don't have like a product to sell they don't have a larger brand they don't have any training in any sort of communications they you know and they're and they have scientific training but they don't have the public outreach training. And this is the kind of conversation that's going on at universities all over the world where, you know, it has been for a couple of decades now with increasing voice. People are saying, you know, this is great that we have all these smart people and how come they can't talk to a journalist when they come around? And how come when they, even when they do, the article that goes out in the paper is all wrong. And, you know, and so you have that communications field, which is, I mean, growing in strength, especially at universities. And now we have places like Twitter where people like me who sort of by rights belong in the academy who never wound up there. <laughs> the, and, you know, that's in, in just in case people don't know the, the Twitter handle ineffective math is a, is a, like a, a wry joke about how I could never get a full-time math job. Yes. Yes. And, and so, and so I, I'm actually funny now cause I, I'm much happier with the job I have now than any math job I could have gotten. But, but part of why I wound up in the public sphere is that technologies like Twitter, like Patreon sort of, like like all of the mathematical and, and scientific visualization tools I use to produce all the things that I use, you know, all that stuff is free. It's just tremendous, tremendous stuff. 
And part of that confluence of technology means that you can have a public facing career in that kind of thing. And now all of a sudden those communication things become really important. And I spend a lot of time thinking about them because I'm conscious of how I'm not good at them. And, and so that's yes. one of these like self-defeating prophecies. You pay attention to it because you know you're bad at it and the attention makes it a little bit better. And over time you, you imagine that it's getting good, but outside of formal training, you don't have any validation that says, okay, now, you know, now your communication skills are acceptable and you don't have to spend a day a week or whatever it is, you know, focusing on marketing. Well, it's, it's funny you, it's funny you mentioned, cause you touched on a lot of uh, things in there that, that are like fun hobby horses of mine. You mentioned philosophy, you mentioned the media um, and, you know, something that I, I take a huge infra, interest in, uh, in politics, in theory, in philosophy and all of these things, but I'm not a smart person and I don't necessarily really understand a lot of it but i have the advantage of of just being able to you know having this captive audience on twitter or through the podcast or whatever else where i can apply these these concepts in a way that can be interesting to people and so that's where the that's where where i'm able to find success i'm able to find success through that rather than the fact that i am some sort of like amazing mind on these topics it's just that I am able to fuse those things with, you know, like you said, like that ability to be public facing, which a lot of people really appreciate. And so one of the, um, on that note, one of the things that I wanted to touch on there is that analytics is just one lens that you can view the sport uh, through. And it's an important one. And uh, stats are obviously like, I mean, the, the outcome of a hockey game is literally determined by, it is a statistical outcome who scored the sure. right so it so it is a very important lens but there are other lenses that you can use too and one of the ones that that I always kind of well two of the ones that I always harp on is one it's really important to understand how the media works and I always say that you know uh, people could people could use if they're going to talk about oh why are all the why is everyone in the media so stupid it's probably a good idea to actually you know understand how the media works and what it does and then the other um uh, lens that I like to talk about a lot is um, just materialism, just the idea that, you know, like people love to talk about Moneyball, but the, um, the, the thing that people forget about, about the ending of Moneyball is that at, at, the end of, at the end of that story, the Oakland Athletics make it all the way to, you know, baseball's version of a conference final. I can never remember what is the AL. <laughs> right name <laughs> so don't i'm not even doing that they make it all the way all the way to that point but they don't win the world series i forget who won the world series that year but it was a team with a lot more money <laughs> and um i think that people you know people sort of they can have a tendency to think that that both people inside and outside the analytics uh, community can have this idea that it's a silver bullet and I don't think anyone with a good handle on the sport really thinks that it is. And so I guess what I wanted to ask you is obviously, you know, there's a lot of weird, uh, I guess, manufacturing consent style stuff going on with who gets to be an analytics team and who doesn't. But there, there definitely are examples of teams that have kind of loudly proclaimed themselves as analytics teams in one way or another teams like Florida very briefly 
Arizona, I'm not sure how much that was even self um, applied so much as by the media, but Arizona would be another example. And Toronto most recently. And obviously these teams have not had a lot of success trying to incorporate analytics into their decision-making. Whether or not that's true is sort of beside the point. That's the popular perception. So I would be curious if you maybe want to, like, we could take a look at each team individually, but maybe just on the whole, like, why do you think those teams have eaten crow so much over the past few years with their attempts to uh, sort of more publicly embrace analytics? So uh, it's funny you should mention those three teams. On the one hand, I agree with you that they, they fit that, that pattern that you mentioned where, where they've, they've all had this sort of intersection with analytics of one kind or another. And, um, but as it happens, the, I have had dealings of one sort or another with all three of those teams. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, about six or seven that I've at least interviewed with or, or done work for or you know, know some of the people involved with. And, and every team that I've had any serious dealings with has revealed itself to be, you know, just like you would expect when you think about it, an unusually complicated mixture of different yeah. voices of different strengths. And, and it's so the, so rather than being analytics, yes, or analytics, no, the temptation to, to be reductive about this particular team you know, which is kind of the point of sports, right? You know, all the teams <laughs> yes. are different, but they all but they all wear the same jersey. Yes, like there's something intrinsically team sporty about that, right? So that that narrative instinct is really very to hand. And but in fact, you know, hockey teams are are fantastic examples of of outfits that really love to present a much more unified view than than is true, and so. So, for instance, in, in Florida, you know, there was incredible internecine conflict over the course of many years, and which was visible even from the outside. You could just watch as the people jumped around positions, yes. let alone knowing, you know, who was the guiding hand behind that draft pick, who was the guiding hand behind that trade, who was the one who chose those ice times, you know, the, the, the number of people, the complexity, that's part of what makes it interesting to me as a, like, as a professional discipline, that you actually, you know, there's lots to analyze. Lots to dig your teeth into. Um, even just from the on-ice stuff, there's plenty of, oh, was it him or was it the zone starts or was it the competition or was it yes. the this or the that? You know, and, and then as soon as you say, well, those are the pieces, well, how much? You know, and then you start to weigh them carefully like that, getting into that complexity. But that kind of complexity on a, like a, talking about teams and how that they've, you know, what kind of success they've had versus what kind of success you, they ought to have had given whatever you're going to give, you know, that complexity doesn't enter the discussion at all. And you know, we, we much prefer the simple reductive stuff. And so on the one hand, you know, just taking Arizona just to start. Sure. On the one hand, the team with which I have, I've had the least um, actual interaction, the, I, I briefly interviewed with them and that didn't go so hot. The, <laughs> not for me or for them. We, we did not enjoy each other and they, they stopped enough. talking to me. Yeah. But, um, well, they wanted me to work for free, which I wasn't interested in doing. Oh, well, yeah, and that's, that's the, a great way to, that is a great way to alienate someone you are, uh, you're interviewing. Yeah, that's, that's good. I wouldn't the, be happy about that either. Well, well, I was, we were talking before about analytics being this, this, um, having within it as a key piece, this desire to justify yourself publicly. Yes. You know, this yeah. sort of scientific, this is what I think, and this is why, which is really antithetical when you think about it to trying to maintain a competitive advantage. 
where, you know, maybe you have those processes internally where you justify like a group of other people to whom you're accountable. If you're trying to make decisions collectively, you know, you really want to get everybody on board. And a lot of people in a lot of sports teams earnestly do, you know, not everybody at the top of the team is, is just trying to consolidate power. But once you have that, you know, that's not completely opposed. The idea of trying to justify what you do rigorously and carefully with trying to run a team. But it does mean that the scraps that leak out are going to be fairly, you know, post hoc analyzed. We're going to try to guess what they knew about the decisions that they made and who had the upper hand and why. And, you know, does that align with the sorts of decisions I would make? And so, so John Schoika, for instance, you know, his, his association with analytics is, I mean, reasonably easy to explain. He's founded a company with a sister <laughs> called Statly. Yes. Like yeah. That's, that's pretty, you know, when you put stat in the name of your company, there's a, there's a reasonably strong, you know, and, and, and Megan and others have continued to do the work there. And, you know, we've seen the stuff coming out of Statley mm-hmm. and lots of people doing good work working there. You know, like it's not, it's not like there's, there's sort of smoke, but no fire at all. No, but, no, certainly not. But it wasn't the same kind of thing as trying to justify yourself publicly. You know, it's not the same thing to run, um, a quasi-academic venture out of your basement as it is to try to run a company out of your basement, even if that's where lots of things start in, in both cases. And so, you know, the, it was easier to, to seize upon an interesting narrative feature when he got hired and say, oh, analytics. And even though a lot of people at the time were like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, not, <laughs> certainly. Not really, not really knowing, you know, I mean, we, we knew as much about the internals of how things were run at Stathletes or how smart, I mean, smart is not the word I want to use, but how, how rigorous, how disciplined, how anything, you know, we, we didn't know anything about that as much as we know about the decisions that come out of the Penguins, the Maple Leafs, the Panthers, but any other team. And, you know, you can, and you can try to rattle off the people, you know, like I know, I know the names of a lot of people who work and, you know, some of them I respect immensely and some of them I respect very little and yeah. I still that doesn't affect how much I know who actually makes the decisions exactly and yeah. so so for instance and, and so turning from from Arizona to Toronto the one of the I mean they unquestionably hired there they hired a number of people with a really good track record in public work the who had who had made websites who had you know published a fair bit of blog work you could tell how they thought the and you know, and making allowances for how the field moved along, you could you could analyze their past work and say, aha, you know, this guy's really onto something. She's really arguing this well, you know. And and so there there was a little bit more a little bit more smoke, if you like, a little bit more substance there where we knew a little bit more about what actually went into those people. Um, but in Toronto they have an unusual problem that a lot of the rest of the league doesn't happen, um, which is that they're quite happy to have a ton of people on staff. And, and the yes. power structures are not, are not, um, as, like there are some teams where, where if you get hired, then that means that, that you have a voice now, you know, even if, even if what you were hired for is not particularly important. Yes. Uh, I had, uh, I had one, in fact, my first job in hockey, which I can't tell you too many details about, uh, <laughs> yeah. where I was just doing. If there's one thing I have learned from knowing people who work in hockey. It's that there's a lot of stuff you can't talk about. <laughs> Uh, I know. In fact, the secrecy kind of drives me around the bend because I think oh, it's very silly. Absolutely, me too. And and just to just to interject too, the thing that you said about the public facing aspect is so true too. Because part of being good at this is making sure that 
your decision making is not too obvious to the outside observer. It reminds me a yep. little bit of this. Um, there's a great MF Doom song called Rap Snitch Knishes, which is basically about um, how if you are a very good gangster or drug dealer, the last thing you would be doing is rapping about it constantly and uh, <laughs> telling people details. And he compares it to being the uh, uh, being the star witness in your own uh, prosecution or whatever. Like you would never do. Right, and right. It's the same thing with uh, with being a good NHL employee. Like if you are good at, at at this, part of being good at it is making sure that nobody outside of your own uh, sphere really understands what the hell you're doing. You know? Yeah. So they're very, the, you know, I, I, I did see that, that um, dimension play out a little bit at a few teams, mm-hmm. but, but every team still has their own, you know, teams have differing levels of secrecy and, and different levels of, of comfort with, with number of people. And so, so the team I was, I was starting to tell you a story about, uh, I, I was brought on to do a very menial job for them, some <laughs> game reports, some, like a little bit of very light pro scouting. Sure. The, and, and it turned out to be, and, and they liked what I did though. And, and, you know, they said, Oh, you know, make the charts look like this. And so I did. And, and, and they were quickly, you know, I was only there for a handful of months and they were already asking me questions like, you know, what do you think about this guy? Should we target this guy? And, and in a very loose sort of way, I was starting to get included in a tiny bit into the decision-making process. Sure where, you know, I didn't, obviously I didn't make any decisions, but they took my input about a handful of things. And there were, there were other teams that I worked for where, where nominally more important roles, paying more money, more work, more time, where I've been kept very carefully off to the side. Out of the loop, you know, yeah. Yeah, where, where my opinions about what is going on are not only not required, are actively discouraged. And, and I, I got the impression from what I've seen from Toronto that the that they're falling much more towards the second style mm-hmm. um, of where you know the where the structure is pretty clearly delineated. These people do this. These people do this. You know, like I, I understand that in some cases they have nerds who um, multiply each other's work. So mm-hmm. instead of instead of working collaboratively, you'll have two different people assigned the same project so that you can use them like error checkers for one another. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and the sort of thing that that you, I mean, it's not a terrible idea, although I don't think I would enjoy working at a place like that. No, me neither. But if you have the kind of resources, then why wouldn't you sure. just get it done twice? Yeah. Get a second opinion. You know, you can, I mean, it's just an ensemble model by another name that you can do that work if you have a lot of money and the willingness to hire and invest. You know, a team like Ottawa, for instance, could never be like that. They, they're not even going to hire one person, let alone two people. <laughs> yes. Although, although actually, come to mention them, they do a tiny bit more than people might expect. I believe that, especially as a especially as a team that is so uh, interested in keeping things cheap, uh, there probably yep. is a certain point where where you start looking at analytics, just maybe not in the way that we expect. Um, uh, I, I could see how there there may be more method to the madness. Um, than, than a lot of people would think. But the, the issue is that what the Ottawa Senators are trying to achieve may not be the thing that you think they should be trying to achieve, which is something we'll actually get to later, but I'll well, allow you to continue. Well, and that, well, that proves, in fact, that's exactly the, the point I was kind of making about even comparing Arizona to Toronto, like we were just talking about about those two teams, and then Florida, again, a third choice. You know, those teams have different goals. Yes. The, like Arizona, 
obviously everybody wants to win the cup. Of course you want to win the cup, but, but also there are financial realities, like how much money are we going to spend and how much are we going to make this year? Mm-hmm. And, and the teams have to be run in years when you're not cup contenders, just like they have to be run in years where you are cup contenders. And, you know, if you're the Leafs, then the, or I'm sure the internal plan is always about how do we get to where we are cup contenders in not that many years. Yes. No matter, like, I, I assume that's the continuing point of view, you know, at all times, regardless of where they happen to be in that cycle at this instant. And whereas in Arizona, it's not going to be like that, where it's going to be more opportunistic. Oh, look, the team is better than we thought. Okay, now what can we do to really make ourselves into something serious yes. for this year and then next year? Who knows? You know, it's not going to be the same mentality whatsoever. And, you know, and in Ottawa, of course, you're talking about something totally different where the, the money structures are just immense. Mm-hmm. And, and there are other teams, you know, Colorado's a internal cap team, even if their internal cap is very high most years. And like the, the difference in goals in terms of how practical is your application to the players you're going to ice this year and how your long-term frames, like for some teams, long-term is like three years and for others it's 10. You know, that yes. those differences mean that even if you take an equally rigorous, equally justifiable, equally quote unquote analytics approach, you're going to come up with different answers because you're answering different questions. One NHL team employee once said to me, and obviously under condition of anonymity because of what he said, but one, one, uh, one NHL employee did say to me once, like you would be surprised how little some people care about winning. <laughs> and I was like, eh, maybe I wouldn't be actually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how many times can you hear it's a business before you start to believe some people? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, it reminds me too, like, I think not to, I mean, obviously I've never been in these rooms and I don't, um, I can only speak secondhand based on what I've heard from people, but it, the, the one thing that comes to mind is that Upton Sinclair quote about how, uh, it's going to be really hard to explain something to someone and make them understand it if their salary depends on them not understanding it. And I think people Absolutely. do, under some circumstances, maybe underestimate the extent to which there are people within the sport who are purposefully uh, playing obstructionist when it comes to these more um, sort of scientifically rigorous ways of of approaching the game, because they ultimately do uh, know or or fear, and in some cases rightly so, that if this becomes the new status quo that leaves them out of a job. And, you know, if if I was, if I was in a position where I, what I had to offer was my experience as a person, either uh, playing the the sport or being an executive in the sport and that my gut was the real thing that I was offering, you know, my, my experience or whatever, I would be, I would have a real vested interest in making sure that everyone thought that was the most important thing and that it was much more important than numbers. There's absolutely a, a real element to the power struggle there. And it's, and it's not just from the people who have positions who don't intend to let them be taken away from them. The, no, certainly not. Like that's, I mean, after all, the, the point of, like the point of both the people who have jobs managing teams at every level from the top on down, as well as, as hobbyists, people who are trying to figure out models, you know, the goal is to understand and, and to say that I understand this thing and you don't is, I mean, is a shot across the bow in every field. Absolutely. It's, it's always going to like, you, you know, the, you can regurgitate the bromides about how the eye test and analytics should be complementary to one another or about how there's you know room for, voices of all kinds in, in good rooms, which is, and, which is true, all of these things. But, but you can't sugarcoat it too much. The, you know, there, there are 
serious differences of philosophy and people who think this way are trying to take jobs from people who think that way. And, and presumably will continue to do so even after this guard changes to the next guard. <laughs> yes. And if history is any guide, we'll, we should expect people to dig in their heels, you know, every inch as tightly as the people who they replaced did so in their turn. Absolutely. No, I think that's, uh, I think that's very, a very astute way of putting it. Um, to, uh, to change lanes here slightly, I did want to talk a little bit about the NHL awards, which just happened. Um, I'm not going to go through uh, every individual award because we don't have time. Uh, but I will just, I guess, ask just a general, like, was there someone this year, uh, specifically in any of the awards categories, who you thought got robbed? And was there anyone across any of the categories who you thought uh, really did not deserve to win and won anyways? Um, so robbed, I thought, no, not that bad. Uh, in fact, as a whole, I thought that the awards were, were, um, done really, really well. The, I feel like the awards in like uh, my lifetime, my lifetime is seven years or something. Like the, the amount <laughs> yes. of years I've been paying like serious attention to the sport. I feel like it's gotten better every year. Certainly. Um, yeah. and you know, in some cases I felt were slam dunks and they did go the way that they should have like Hellebuck for the Vesna. Had he not gotten that, I think I would have been legitimately upset. Um, (laughs) I thought, uh, I thought, um, uh, I wasn't, I thought there were several better choices for Selkie than Couturier um, because I think a lot of Couturier's value is offensive. And I think that's not what the award should be about. Although in practice it is what it's about. Yes. Um, But that's more sort of a definitional thing that I, I I wish the award were like this as it's written and not like that as it's been awarded. Yes. And and that's a a cultural argument, not a hockey argument. And that's a consistent problem with the awards voting is that nobody knows what the fuck they're voting for or on that that in. Yeah. And in practice, that is where the like metal hits the road for the actual argument. Yes. Is not, not who deserves it, but what is the award? What are we Mm -hmm. actually rewarding? And once you get that out of the way, then there wasn't too much. I didn't like dry sidle for heart, um, but I, I felt like a number of people um, were stronger. I didn't feel like anybody particularly got robbed there because I felt that, that even though I didn't have dry sidle rated very highly kind of in my, my own internal mental metric of this, I actually, like, I would lose my brain if I had to actually vote for things. Sure, I would, yeah. I would take forever. And so I don't have, like, a ranking or anything except for a handful of boards where I felt like it was reasonably clear. But I thought there were several extremely good players who could easily have won the heart this year. Totally. Yeah. And, and and that's actually really, as a fan, that makes me really pleased about Mm -hmm. the sport. You know, I I find it really boring when you have like only two good players in the entire league. And that's, Oh God. I, yeah. I look through sometimes because we're, especially for the stuff we do on the Patreon, we do a lot of like, uh, diving back into, I mean, specifically Canucks history, but NHL history. And, you know, like I remember one thing that I do a lot of the time is look at Stanley Cup winning rosters. And there were times in the early 2000s, especially, where like the leading scorer on the Stanley Cup winning team had like 52 points. And I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm like, geez, thank God it's not like that anymore. You know, like, yeah, right. Whoever, whoever wins the cup, this year, whether it's Dallas or Tampa, like there are, there are going to be a lot of really talented players on that roster who have the, the, the traditional counting stats to back it up. And, and thank God for that, because man, like Jamie Langenbrunner, you know, <laughs> being the, the <laughs> highest scoring player on a, on a cup winning team is really depressing. Well, the, and 
I, I think this is part and parcel with with what we were mentioning earlier about how the quality of conversation around analytics and how the sport is analyzed has gone up, about how the award voting has gone up. I think the quality of on-ice play has also gone up. Oh, certainly, and yeah. I would love to believe that that work done, you know, that, that work done by me and by people like me has contributed to that. That might be wishful thinking. I think things sport actually is a little slower than that, um, yeah. just by nature, right? Because people only come in so fast, they only go out so fast. You know, natural human life scales are really gonna gonna dominate that. But but I feel like the, the sport as a whole has, you know, not invariably, but mostly gotten better with better rules, better better players, more styles that I prefer yeah. to watch. You know, like the, the years agree. of Colton Orr getting rolled out on the Leafs fourth line for <laughs> you know many minutes a night. Like that was that was twenty fourteen. Yeah, it was not uh, long ago. You know, it's true. Right, not even a decade ago, yeah. and and so if you look at like you know you were talking about looking at the top of the roster and being not blown away with cup winners, you know you right. look at the middle or the bottom of the roster on like middling playoff teams, the from just six years ago, and you'll see a bunch of players. That's where the who, real change has happened, actually. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like the those um the you can't you can't ice two lions that can't score anymore. It just doesn't happen. Anymore. Right. Part of what part of why I like that, what really pleases me about that is that one of the like day to day parts of my job that I really enjoy is being able to pick out a player of, you know, who doesn't get a great deal of press, mm-hmm. you know, who's laboring away on a third line or fourth line, especially on maybe a team that doesn't get a great deal of attention the, and say, actually, this guy, this guy is really good, mm-hmm. you know, and and explain, you know, why I think he's really good. Like, what is it that he's doing? You know, and maybe it's not spectacular, but it's really good. And you can say, well, this is why these are the details and like being able to build up guys like that. And maybe this is wishful thinking, but on my imagination, a lot of these players are the sorts of players who would not be in the league if their team had to dress, you know, two guys who can fight. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And no, that's very true. And so I really like that, or I really enjoy being able to say, you know, this person isn't going to have a huge, illustrious, long NHL career, but they might play three and a half seasons where they play most of the games every night, and they might be a useful contributor, whereas instead, you know, they're going to work at a car dealership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's like, you know, every now and again, you get this, this straw man again about how, you know, like, you know, nerds just like to tear people down and talk about how this guy sucks and, and you know, Tanner Glass jokes and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, and and certainly some people do, and I'm not immune from, from that indulging in that kind of thing. But, <laughs> yeah. but at the end of the day, the roster spots are basically fixed. The rules dictate how many people play. And so if this guy doesn't play, somebody else does. And if you're going to, and once you take that opinion, once you realize that, then the question is really who should play, not who shouldn't. And, yes. and I enjoy sort of using my powers of evil for good to, to tease apart, not obviously noticeable things, you know, I mean, guys, guys who could fight were obviously good at fighting generally. And they were brought in for that reason. It was extremely visible. And, and I enjoy the work of trying to tease apart things that aren't so obviously visible and say, actually, this person is helping, you know, in these ways. Well, my, my favorite thing that, and I, I, we do have to address uh, the Canucks towards the end of this episode here. Cause I don't think the listeners would forgive me if I went a whole episode without talking about them, but I actually think there are two players at least on the Canucks roster right now that are actually kind of this beautiful Testament to guys who, because of analytics 
went from being under underrated guys that the stats community would look at and go, hey, this guy really doesn't get enough credit to being overrated. And those two guys are one, Chris Tanev, who I really hope is about to get a massive uh, like five-year deal from the Pens. Uh, that would be great. I would love for a team that's not the Canucks. <laughs> that would be awesome because I love Chris Tanev, and I really do think that he did spe- – there were a couple years there where he was a very, very good unheralded defensive defenseman who became heralded largely because the analytics community and the, uh, and the hockey man community were kind of able to, to agree on, on a guy um, <laughs> for different reasons because he, was, he produced good underlying numbers by doing things that hockey men really like. Um, and then the other uh, one is obviously Louis Erickson, um, who, uh, you know, I feel like was consistently, oh, he's the most underrated player in the league for maybe three or four years in a row and then got to cash in and completely disappear uh, for the rest of his career. <laughs> but that's, that's neither here nor there. The, the last, I want to ask you two more things. Um, uh, the first is I have to address the Calder race. Uh, obviously, a lot of fans in Vancouver are very upset that, that Quinn Hughes didn't... Um, didn't wasn't able to to take the the mantle away from Kale McCarr there, and I, I think they they do. Um, I think it was very 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 close, maybe the closest Calder race we've seen in a long time. But do do Canucks fans have a right to be upset about that? What do you think? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I so I have spent a great deal of time comparing the two specifically, just because it's been such a hot button topic. Um, in fact, I. Uh, um, there's an article coming out in Forbes, I think, um, tomorrow or the day after, which is, um, among other things, a conversation with a journalist and me about, you know, like really digging into Macar versus Hughes this oh, year. Oh, that's great. I and can't. how they were used. And, and in fact, it, it was the kind of thing where, where, where I really feel like I understand it a lot better myself now because I had to like dig into it even more for that, for that reason. And I mean, you can't, you can't avoid coming away from a really careful analysis of either player without realizing that they're, that they're both extremely special players. Mm-hmm. And part of what makes it an interesting discussion is that, is that in a normal Calder year, either one of them could have run away with a vote. Yeah. Let alone, I mean, let alone having to go up against guys like Adam Fox you know, who yeah, didn't who get was, a lot of votes, but, but I enjoyed myself. Excellent. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was extremely good, a little old for some people's rookie taste. Sure. And, and which is, you know, fair crook if you like that kind of thing. I, you know, I personally don't care about it, but that's fine. The, and, and there were several others who were also very good. Yeah. Um, uh, Mackenzie Blackwood in, in Jersey, and he's a goalie, so he's a little bit different, but like, the, the rookie crop just extraordinary this year. Yeah, in a and, weak and, year, some guys who who finished third, fourth, fifth in voting could have could have won in a weak year. Like sure. it, was, it was a very, very strong crop. Yeah. And so one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was looking at at um, Hughes and McCarr is that almost everything about them gives you a different. Um, like gives you a different comparison. They're really not similar players, even though they're similarly good. Yes. And so Hughes had an unusual responsibility to chase leads that McCarr did not have. And if you look at his score deployment, he played from behind so much and played with the puck on his stick so yeah. much. And, and you see that in a lot of other like sort of follow-up stats, um, more giveaways, uh, more takeaways, more uh, penalties taken, more penalties drawn. The 
um, a lot more just involvement. He the, obviously he gets to pass to guys like Patterson a lot. True. The, he can also he can also shoot himself. Um, his quality he just played more minutes, not like mm-hmm. almost two hundred more minutes than wow. Makar, who also played a who played a ton of minutes. Yeah, like Makar, just a little over nine hundred at five on five. Um, just at five on five, a little over nine hundred, and he was a little over eleven hundred. Um, which is both like just so many minutes for both of them, like rookies, right? Yeah. And and then the and then you look at the roles that they were used in. The it's not just that Colorado was a a slightly stronger team where they were ahead more, but even accounting for that, the Avs played Makar when they were winning. Yeah, and and so he has a a, a role which is less structured around the puck itself. Um, you know, his team doesn't even have the puck as much, let alone him personally. Yeah. Whereas the Canucks, when Hughes is on the ice, they're losing more. So the Canucks have the puck more and he personally has the puck a lot. And so that, that's, I think, part of where the part of where it's easy to get bent out of shape as a fan. Yeah. Because you and, see, you see him with the puck. That yes, guy with the yeah. puck. And the individual team, uh, like quality too. Uh, right. Where I think, I think for a lot of people, certainly for me, my all, my case that I always make is just, is just like, okay, so you've got two players that, that on the surface look really similar. Like how could you possibly decide between the two players? To me, it, it would be very easy to just make the case of, well, what are the Avs without Makar and what are the Canucks without Hughes? I think you can make very easily make the case. Mm-hmm. That, that you know, for two teams that ended up with with identical results at the end of the year, you know, seventh. Yeah, true. In in round two, I the case I always make, and it's not an analytical case whatsoever. It's it's just a very service level uh, case. Is just well, look look at the difference in the teams. And so if if one guy did this playing for a good team, and one guy did it playing for a team that. Well, we'll get to the quality of the team in a minute. Um, I, I think you could make a very strong case for Hughes. And I think for me, the most upsetting thing was I thought it should have been a lot closer. And maybe it was in the sense that maybe, you know, all of those guys who voted Makar at number one really, really, really thought about having Hughes at number one <laughs> in the final. When the final results came in, I just remember thinking, wow, like that many more people thought that they should give it to Makar than Hughes. And that was really surprising to me. So one of the, you know, you mentioned the teammate quality and I think that's, I think that's really important. One of the, one of the things that, one of the things that I looked at that really speaks towards the favorite Hughes in the, in the discussion is that, you know, if you want to do it really carefully, you need to use a model and like get into the nitty gritty. And I don't remember that stuff anyway. Sure. But, but like just looking at really sort of bird's eye views of competition, the, sorry, teammates. The one thing that really stood out to me about Hughes, the, the clear best teammate that he played with, is Patterson. Yes. With whom he played about a third of his five-on-five five minutes. It's pretty substantial. Totally. Whereas if you look at, if you do the same sort of analysis, and, and after that there were several other players that I considered good, um, but, and I'm not going to name them, but no one that I looked at that said, oh, wow, you know, that guy's going to really boost the guy's numbers. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, I would agree with that. Like, Pet- Pedersen, the Canucks have good players, but Pedersen is out of their good players, the guy who you would reasonably think, like, playing with him is going to make you better. Right. And, you know, just like, is the kind of name, certain names that sort of stand out. You see a guy like McDavid's name, and you think, okay, his, his teammates, we got to keep track. Yes. Like, you know, that's good. There's, there's going to be ripple effects there. It's not just going to be another guy. And then you do the same thing for Macar, 
are, and you look at who he played with, and keep in mind he paid a little bit less, like I was saying, about 200 minutes yeah. fewer, then half of his minutes are with Nathan McKinnon. Yeah. And a big, and a big, almost all of those are with Rantanen because McKinnon and Rantanen were stapled together on the top line for most of the year. So, and, and then, you know, you rattle off the other people on the list that you start looking down further and you, you know, a lot of Nazem Kadri, who's extremely good. A lot of Valerie Nichushkin, who's pretty good actually. (laughs) Well, extremely good defensively specifically. Yeah. And, and it starts to fit a pattern as well though, where, where he was used more defensively than, than Hughes was. Yes. And so, so those things, you know, the, the teammate quality, I think was unquestionably better for Makar specifically. But then you look at some of the deployment details and they both have a kind of, they're just rookies. We're not going to put them in too crazy zone situations. Mm-hmm. So they both have generous offensive zone usage. Um, but for Hughes, it's 18% of his starts in the offensive zone and 9% in the defensive zone, Yeah, which is crazy generous. Absolutely. And if you look at Makar, if you look at Makar, the defensive zone stuff is the same and the offensive zone is nice, but it's not as nice. Something like 13 or 14%. I'm remembering something off the top of my head that I looked up yesterday, so I don't yeah, have it in front it of It really me. goes but, to show you, know, you how, how close it is in terms of trying to account for quality, but in such different ways. Like there's no, right. and then you, yeah, there's no real area you can look at and you can go, ah, well, you know, that this is the silver bullet. This is where Hughes was better than no. or vice versa, because there's always an equal and opposite kind of counterpoint that you can make. I, I felt I came out of it sort of going into it. I, I came in imagining, you know, I'm sort of a secret Canucks fan in places that <laughs> sure. I lived in. I, I lived in, in Sydney, Australia when the Canucks went on their cup run. Okay. And, yeah. uh, and so all of the Canucks, all of the hockey fans in Sydney, you know, a city of 5 million people, totally. and all of the hockey fans are Canucks fans. You know, okay, they, yeah. they say, oh, I've been to Canada, and they mean I've been to Vancouver and possibly Whistler. Of course, but, yeah, absolutely. And that's so, a, so that's a like trope a little... out here, too, like the, of the <laughs> Australian who, who like moves here or the BC person who moves to Australia. Yeah, very, yeah, right. very much so. And so I went into it. I went into sort of analyzing the pair of them, thinking to myself that I was, gonna, that I was probably going to find that I prefer to use. And I found myself legitimately torn. Mm-hmm. That yeah. and, and the roles, the more more close details I looked at it, the more I saw Hughes being earmarked for offense by his coach and McCarr being earmarked for defense and, and getting the kinds of results that I think any coach would be extremely pleased with from their rookie. Like they got the scoring that they wanted from Hughes. They yes. got the offense and, and Colorado got the defense that they wanted from, from McCarr. And they paired him with Ryan Graves, who's more defensive than um well i mean i don't know more defensive than christana it's tough a lot to of... say yeah <laughs> it's tough to say it's <laughs> I, it, I mean those are roles are classic. different yeah yeah no yeah certainly. okay so uh that leads us to the the final question that was a a question that we probably got more mileage out of than any question ever uh in 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 uh in podcasting history i would say so obviously it's a loaded question, but I have to ask it to every guest who comes on because I feel like we still, <laughs> we still don't have the answer. It's still up in the air. Are the Canucks good, Micah? Hi, hi. Um, <laughs> That's usually how, that is usually how everyone starts their response. It's, there are, I mean, we were talking earlier about how, about how no, like simple reductive answers to things like, you know, is this team well run even is, is very difficult. Yes. Certainly. I, there are, there are lots of things to like, and also lots of things to not like about the Canucks. And I think, 
that that actually is uh, a fair bit doesn't sound very glowing, but it's a fair bit better than can be said about a number of teams. There, you know, there are a fair few teams where there aren't very many good things to say. Yes. Um, and so it, it also depends a lot. Like we were talking before about different teams having different horizons. You know, the the sort of unspoken context behind the question of are they good depends a lot on what you mean. You know, are they yeah. like are they going to contend for the cup next year? Probably not. Mm-hmm. The are they like are they well run? I don't think so. The, are they, you know, do they have, do they have the kinds of extremely good pieces that are required to build something that can win in a few years? Yes. Yeah. The, you know, which can't, which is not like I say yes in this sort of obvious way, because I think it's obvious about the Canucks, but many teams do not have those pieces. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, and so no amount of being well run will help them until they get those pieces. Mm -hmm. So like you need to, and and you can be not particularly well run and still, um, I mean, luck is not the word, still get extremely good results if you have really good players. Yes. The, like, one of the things that I, that is like a pet peeve of mine, and maybe it's just part and parcel of, of quote unquote analytics thinking, is that, you know, I don't believe any of those tropes that you can only win a cup if everybody's pulling for the same direction. Sure. You know, yeah. And you can only like the sort of team culture stuff, like absolutely you can win a cup in spite of your bad coach. Mm-hmm. Not that every team is like this, but, but every cup is won in spite of the worst elements on the team. And, you know, the, the, like you can tell your players, you know, everyone's got to be in it together, given 120%, uh, but, but we don't have to believe that after the fact. <laughs> yes. Yeah, certainly. I, I, so I, mean- I Sorry, just to just to interject there too, and and that that does tie back to part of the conversation we had about like what is and isn't an analytics team is that ultimately like one of the things that I think people can lose sight of is the fact that it's not enough for you to like analytics or for you to be well run. Um, like analytics has to like you, if that makes sense. Like you having the best players is going to go infinitely further than having the best process if that makes sense oh yeah 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 and the process i mean and you should think of those things as disjointed in time the process is designed to get you the players <laughs> yes right the yes. like the, it doesn't it doesn't change the quality of the players that you've got although i mean good coaching really good coaching can it does make a difference you can yeah. you know you can use the players that you've got poorly or you can use them well and you know and you've at a highly highly competitive level you know you need those edge you don't just need an edge you need a great multiplicity of edges you need the and you don't need them all to go right but you need lots of things to go right and and so so i like to think of it this way as not in terms of like try to avoid binary thinking whenever possible it's part of why i waffled in the first instance at the you know are they good are they bad question you know do you do you have pieces you can work with can you make them better can you like i i I don't get into this very often, but I don't like to, I don't like to think about rebuilds in the classical sense. I think a lot of them could be avoided. Um, I think most teams could take a more, a more like continuous improvement sort of way. Like how do we get better this year? How do we get better this year? And, and, you know, if they were ruthless with themselves about isolating, you know, crystallizing the gains that they got that they didn't expect, whether, you know, that guy we picked in the fourth round turns out he's real good. All right. So he goes onto the second line, even though, you know, our first round pick from last year kind of sucks. Yes. You know, you, yeah. Like if you have the courage to say something like that and say, well, you know, we're going to do this because it's our best team. Yes. The, like 
which requires, you know, you can't do that unless you've made your peace with luck to a certain extent. The, and, and so once you can do that, then you can make those decisions. You can say, well, you know, you can, you can be a little bit riskier. You can go forward a little bit faster and you can start, you can start making the kinds of decisions that will turn your pieces into something really special. And then of course, you know, I'm, I'm watching Tampa right now. They just started playing. They're already losing. That, um, <laughs> and, but like they, like I, they're probably the closest team in the league that I can think of, you know, them in Boston to like, you know, no, no particular weaknesses in the team, you know, reasonably well. I hate, breaks my heart to say these things about Boston, that, but like <laughs> yeah, both those too. teams, you know, tremendous forward groups, really good defenders, excellent yep. goaltending, good coaching, no you know, reasonably well GM. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, and with some recent drafting amusements, notwithstanding, you know, like <laughs> yes. well drafted as well, like, you know, Perfect decision making is not is not what anyone you have to be requires. a good drafting team to do what the Bruins did in 2015 and and have it not sink <laughs> your franchise. Absolutely, and of course you can be a good drafting team and still and still fall down on a lot of the other pieces, yep, and you can come out really badly. And you know one of the things I think is important too, and and I try to be scrupulous about these sorts of things is to realize that even bad teams, even really bad teams, have good players, possibly even very good players mm-hmm. and have aspects of their process, which is really good. You know, and you, you're not obliged because the team is bad at nine things to say that they must be bad at the 10th thing. You know, there's something, some like willingness to tar people with a, with a particular brush. that's only one color, which I think is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, but you look at teams like, like Tampa, part of why I thought about them in the first place is not just that they're on the screen, but that, but that they've had a very solidly constructed roster with extremely few mistakes and and this is their first cup final in however long and they might even leave it five years yeah right and so like and five years is a good like a pretty decent window totally. for a team five years from now even even if they try to keep guys you know they'll be quite a different team yes in five years for better or for worse and so you know you like you can actually do everything right and not win yeah and which is cruel but but once you once you realize that and you get out of this idea of saying, well, actually only the teams who won were the, the good teams. Yes. The, then once you get out of that, that really restricted way of thinking, then you can realize that actually there's lots of different ways to skin a cat. And, and there's also a lot of space. It's kind of hair raising in another way though, because it means there's a lot of ways that things can go wrong. And, you know, and you know, you might actually GM very well and, and do everything right and then get fired. There's no <laughs> certainly just well, it happens to coaches all the time. They just get fired because we want somebody new, not because we actually think there's anything wrong with what you were doing. And and the same like that that level of luck you just have to just have to make peace with, which means you know in practice that you can be exposed to any amount of of people who are happy to yell at you, <laughs> you know, which is just part of doing the job in public, which is absolutely much more true for you know somebody running a hockey team than it is for for somebody like you or like me. Yes. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Make peace with getting yelled at. Your life will be a lot easier. Uh, I thank you very much for for joining me, Micah. This was uh, a lot of fun, and we'll we'll have to have you back sometime with uh, with the full court press. But I thank you for for joining me this week in these trying times. <laughs> Not at all. You can have me back anytime you like. Awesome. Take care Th- and enjoy the game. Yeah, yourself as well. Thanks. Yo. MF Doom. Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Villain. What up, nigga? Ain't nothing. What's the word? It's cracking, boy. Same old shit, kid. Man.
snitches, we have snitches, man. Shit is bugged out, man. What the fuck, man? Niggas running their mouth. Telling anything. Anything. Rap snitches, telling all their business Sit in the court and be their own star witness Do you see the perpetrator? Yeah, I'm right here, fuck around Get the whole label center for years, uh Rap snitches, telling all their business Sit in the court and be their own star witness Do you see the perpetrator? Yeah, I'm right here, fuck around Get the whole label center for years, uh. Tight profile, low, like eight and paid in full Attract heavy cash, cut the game centrifugal Mr. Fantastic, long though like elastic All my life with twin clocks that's made out of plastic can't stand a brown nosing nigga, fake ass bastard. Admiring my style, tall bust through Manhattan, plotting, playing the quickest. My flow's the sickest, my hoes be the thickest, my dro the stickiest. Street nigga, stamped and bonafide. When beef jump, niggas come get me, cause they know I ride. True to the ski mask, New York's my origin. Play a fake gangster like an old accordion. According to him, when the D's rushed in, complication from the wild testimony was thin. Caused this man to go up north, the boy hit him again. Lame rap snitch, nigga, even told on the man. Mexican rap snitches telling all their business, sit in the court and be their own star witness. Do you see the perpetrator? Yeah, I'm right here. Fuck around, get the whole label center for years. Rap snitches telling all their business, sit in the court and be their own star witness. Do you see the perpetrator? Yeah, I'm right here. Fuck around, get the whole label center for years. True, it's rules to this shit. Fools dare care. Everybody wanna rule the world with tears for fear. Yeah, yeah, tell them, tell it on the mountain hill. Running up their mouth, Bill. Everybody doubting still. Former, keep it up and get tested. Pop through your bubble vest or double breasted. He keep a lab down south in the little beast. So much heat, you would've thought it was the Middle East. A little grease always keeps the wheels a spinning. Like sitting on 23s to get the squealers grinning. Hitting on many trees, feel real linen. Spitting on enemies, get the steel for ten men. With no brains but gum flap. He said his gun clap. Then he fled after one slap. Sun shut the trap, save it for the bitches. Mmm, delicious rap snitch delicious. You know what I'm saying? It's terrible. crazy, man. I'm just analyzing this whole game. This is bugged out, man. Niggas snitching. Telling on their own self. It's a horror, Fuck man. around. Don't get anybody bag, man. Trust Fuck around. Get your mama bag, man. You know your grandma used to be bootlegging. Fake hustling, nigga. <laughs> <laughs>